Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the end of a long day at my desk. I've had a lot to catch up with. Bert's been on Easter holiday. So I've been hanging out with him, which is always lovely. And also my office has been decorated over the last couple of weeks. Well, actually, it feels like longer than that because I started decorating my office and then it got overwhelmed with like stacked up boxes where I was doing other stuff in the house as is always the case in my office incidentally I'd like to rather bitterly say that my office is the dumping ground for the rest of the house I dream of a room of my own and then I couldn't really get in there and then a nice man called Dan came and painted it for me last week and then of course I had to clean it all out again it feels like a long time since I could get back in there and not be huddled on the dining room table trying to make the best of things and today I got back in and it's looking lovely there's finally more than enough space for all my books which is something of a first for me I don't know what to do with all the space it's really exciting (laughs) so yeah I caught up on a few things today but now I've just come down to the beach to catch the sun for a little while I've got my summer dress on. I'm feeling springy. (laughs) I think I'm having a time of sorting things out at the moment. I'm thinking about my working space. And I've been busy with 
loads of other things too. I've got a strange time ahead for the next year in that my book is ready to go and it's a year until it's published. So that leaves me with an odd piece of time because it's too early to write the next book. I write books in quite a short period of time if I can. It's too soon. And yet, what will I do? What will I be if I'm not writing a book? There's this fear that rises up in me that I'll forget how to write somehow or that I'll lose the knack. And I think, in a way, that's a valid fear. It's something that's a muscle, writing, or any creative practice. You have to keep moving, you have to keep doing it. So I've been looking for what I should do for the next while. I've got a few thoughts. Every night I go to bed and I dream a different novel. It's really funny. My brain is trying to make helpful suggestions for me. <laughs> Maybe I'll write one of them. Who knows? Had a really good one about a hotel last night. We'll see. But also I have been sorting out all my other things too. I'm revamping my newsletter, which I tried to revamp last year and didn't do it very well. So I'm doing another revamp. You'll see that soon. And I'm working with an amazing illustrator who is going to make it look beautiful which it hasn't before so excited to show you that watch this space I'll let you know and I guess I'm just trying to set everything to rights get my bookshelves in order sometimes you've got to do that it's lovely to be down here I'm standing by the edge of the sea next to one of the wave breaks that's covered in beautiful bladderac seaweed which is what I have tattooed on my arms now and I've just noticed by my feet there's an open clamshell I'm going to pick it up one of the double ones that's still attached it's beautiful colour pink inside like a butterfly I'll never stop enjoying seashells and taking them home <sighs> which brings me neatly to the conversation you're about to listen to with the author and spiritual teacher, Cole Arthur Riley, who it was just such a pleasure to talk to. I wasn't sure if she'd say yes when I asked her, and I was so thrilled that she did, because it's wonderful to connect with people who've got such a beautiful engagement with the world. And she so often talks about wonder in her book, This Here Flesh, and about how wonder can flow through everyday things and make the everyday luminous and how in many ways that's so much more important than these very distant ideas of a grand god who is making the rules in some faraway place anyway i think you'll love her do take a listen and i'll see you again in a little while Welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast for loads of reasons, actually. Partly because I just loved your book. Thank you. But also, I I wanted to talk to you because, you know, I'm English, as you can well tell. And 
we have a very awkward relationship with talking about spirituality in the UK. We are self-conscious about it and we are avoidant of it. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, I know that uh, it's really hard to publish books about any kind of spiritual issue in my country because uh, even like religious folk don't tend to engage in that conversation. It's this thing that we're very embarrassed about. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get better about talking about it and about hearing other people's perspectives too. And I feel like Americans are much better at this than us. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I know it's kind of complicated, but there isn't Mm -hmm. that absolute kind of sucking in of breath and and drawing away. Um, Yes that that we certainly have. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I was laughing on Sunday because uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, like in his Easter sermon, made like this proclamation, not proclamation, maybe that's the wrong word, but said that God would judge the government for the way they're treating Ukrainian refugees. And there was this kind of big political consensus in the UK that he shouldn't have brought God into it. And I thought, well, that tells you a lot about where we are in the UK, that we don't even think the Archbishop of Canterbury should bring God into anything. (laughs) 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 Which is a nice summary of (laughs) of what we're like here. (laughs) But you are the founder of Black Liturgies, which, can you describe that a little for us? Because it's, it's a, it's something I follow on Instagram and it's this very beautiful account. Sure. Yeah. Well, first I'll just say, you know, on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have (laughs) Americans who are just really excited to, to have a religion be supreme and to kind of (laughs) triumph. And so, um, yeah, sadly, I think many Americans kind of use it as an excuse to, to talk maybe too much in order to have their spiritual (laughs) belief system seem kind of larger than, and so it's really, it's really complicated. And so when I started Black Liturgies, I think I've always been kind of aware of that tension that, temptation to Mm. make anyone's spirituality supreme and to to make spirituality more about being right than about conveying, you know, what it means to be human, what it means to love and what it means to grieve. I think there's always this temptation to kind of like prove one's rightness and capital Mm. T truth. And I wanted to resist that when I started Black Liturgies and kind of have this spiritual space that maybe felt more liberating in a way that would allow for, you know, a transparency that I'm speaking out of a Christian tradition. I've been formed in a Christian tradition, but I I never want to cling too tightly to Mm. to any doctrine. I, I don't necessarily feel people sometimes are frightened by this, but I don't necessarily feel an allegiance to Christianity. Mm. I more so feel this allegiance to the questions of what it means to be human, you know, a a kind of fidelity to being a person that asks questions of the spiritual. I try to convey that in Black liturgies and I connect and center Black emotion and Black literature and the Black body. And I connect that with the spiritual practice of written prayer and 
Um, mm. Usually have some kind of breath exercise as well. Yes, breath is so important to you. And it, it's part of this sense that you're writing about day-to-day survival, about the, the kind of realities of living and that kind of embodied experience. Yes. And I think, I mean, because of how I've chosen to share Black liturgies initially through Instagram and still primarily through Instagram, I felt like I really, you know, needed to be responsible with people's bodies because I know what social media can do. You know, I know what these, these Mm. algorithms were created by very brilliant people who (laughs) have learned how to keep us um, disembodied and scrolling. And I thought if I'm going to kind of use this as a tool I Mm. I want to be able to try to draw people out um, out and into their own bodies and you know whether they practice it or not I I I wish I could tell you know but I think there's something of a dare in it you know like it's daring you when you you know scroll past it and something's telling you inhale and exhale Mm. it's at least I find it difficult not to um, practice that so yeah sure yeah I incorporate breath a lot And having that pause in that stream of information that we're scrolling through, it does. Your your posts always make me just stop just for a moment in my endless scrolling because they do invite me to do something very deliberately with my body, which... I need to do. I, I live in my head all the time. I'm a writer. You know, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's very hard to to find that contact with the the physical corporeal world sometimes for me. Yes, I, I absolutely resonate with that. Um, I, I can just be in my head for hours and completely forget. And when I kind of come to, I realize like my shoulder is hurting or my back is hurting just because of the way I've been sitting, you know, but I've been so Mm. kind of out of my own body. I wasn't able to sense it. Anyways, I'm just realizing these things about myself that have been true all my life, but I'm starting to put language to them and realizing so much of it is grounded in disembodiment. And yeah. 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 And it's all connected. Well, let's Let's start talking about you because you're such a storyteller. And I, what I loved in This Here Flesh was this sense that your stories and your family's stories are all completely intertwined as, as if their stories are your stories, like as if you kind of inherited them genetically somehow. Yes. And I, I loved this idea that you were a child who didn't really speak much, who chose to be mute for the longest time. Can you tell us a little bit about that and set the stage for me? (laughs) Sure. So you can picture, you know, four to six-year-old Cole uh, was very, very shy, um, a very anxious child. I would walk around with my ears just tucked into my shoulders and very distinct from people in my family. So my family is just, they're lovely and loud and boisterous and chaotic and um, (laughs) very charismatic and and winsome and charming. And I am perhaps the only reserved person (laughs) in my family, uh, reserved and quiet. So, you know, there are these home videos of everyone in the kitchen laughing and, you know, carrying on. And then the the camera just pans to Cole sitting at a windowsill, you know, staring <laughs> sadly <laughs> and lo- longingly out the window. Um, or I could 
be found in closets kind of tucked away reading goosebumps books or things like that so I was very reserved and very um solitary but a lot of that was born of anxiety as well so I had a a fairly common childhood anxiety disorder called selective mutism and I would find myself unable to speak around certain groups of people or strangers and so I have a lot of memories of even wanting to speak, but feeling this bodily resistance, you know, and feeling like I I couldn't say what I needed to say. I tell a story in the book about getting my hand stuck in one of our screen doors and my my father had friends over and my aunt was in the living room and there were people I didn't know in the house. And so I didn't cry out for help, you know, I'm just this little girl just writhing and, you know, (laughs) Knowing being in terrible pain. Yes, just praying. That's he just his eyes just come over this way and see me. And yeah, if you read the book, you you know that it's my sister who in the end finds me and leads me in this kind of really sacred childlike screaming session in the backyard with fleas pops. But yeah, <laughs> yes. I've 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 had a very complicated relationship with language since I was little and I did speech therapy for a number of years and remained pretty shy and not incredibly verbal through high mm. school, really. So it's it's been a long journey. Yeah. And and when you were, I think, eight, um, your hair turned grey as well, because you were you were so anxious. You were such an anxious little thing. Yes, yes. Oh man. Um, <laughs> I tell people this and, and they're just the disbelief. Um, but yeah, I I had gray hair from just such a young age and poor me because you know, all I wanted was my own invisibility, sadly. Mm. And, you know, a, a little black girl sprouting gray hairs, you know, at such a young age, it just everyone's eyes drawn to me, even mm. if they weren't, you know, it, it certainly felt like it was because it's the things that are distinct about us that are our earliest alienators, you know? And so I had a lot of shame and alienation and anxiety that I was carrying in my body. And yeah, the the hair did not help. An old head on young shoulders, literally. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, your family are incredible talkers and storytellers. And I they sound like an amazing bunch of people. You just, to, to read about them, you just want to be in their company. It just sounds yes. like this lively household. And I mean, I was fascinated by your dad and I was fascinated by your grandmother, but I, I'd love to get you talking about your dad because, I mean, it seems to me like he was a talker above all else. He was like a persuader yes, and someone who could kind of coach you into endless acts of making yourself braver and better and bigger. Yes. I mean, my father is so smooth. He's just (laughs) smooth, smooth, smooth. Um, He's not even the kind of smooth where you kind of sense that someone's maybe selling you something or, you know, it's not quite like that. It's just, he has a way of making you feel so yourself, you know, so comfortable Mm. with however you present to him. He's can adapt, you know, he can adapt to kind of speak your language and even speak your body language. And I grew up just watching him and watching this unapologetic 
kind of metamorphosis uh, that just <laughs> happened again and again and again. And I'd, I'd hear him answer the phone and it sounded like he had six different voices, you know? And um, <laughs> so he's, he's lovely. He's always been a hustler, a hustler mm, since he was mm. a, a child working multiple jobs, you know, shoveling sidewalks and cleaning this laundry facility in the evenings. And so he's always had a bit of hustle in him, mm. not a restful spirit by any means, and certainly not a reader. A lot of people kind of assume that I'm from a, a family of readers or yeah. my father will be the first person to tell you, you know, he's not a reader nor a writer. He doesn't quite have the patience um, for books. But I think because of who he is, he recognized that in me. And so he adapted our entire household into being this family of written words. And so he would bribe uh, me and my siblings to write little poems or short stories and or we could do that to get out of chores you know if we didn't want to <laughs> vacuum that day <laughs> yes br- I mean brilliant you know because if you have a choice between wiping baseboards and you know writing a poem <laughs> on the color yellow you you'll choose the poem probably and so he found a way to and and that also brought my siblings into my form of expression you know right it brought you together Exactly. Because they, they frankly didn't need it in the way that I did. They were all very verbal, very charismatic children and very comfortable and well, as comfortable as children can be in their own skin. Mm. And so my father very wisely kind of saw something distinct in me and was able to rework our, our family culture and our kind of household spirituality to, to look different. It's amazing. He, he just, he comes across in your book as a incredibly smart, intuitive parent who was constantly working with you in the way that you wanted to work rather than straining against you. It's such a rare thing. I I do. The older I get, the more I realise how rare it is, you know, to Mm. have a a father that really takes you seriously. I always felt like he really took my emotions seriously, even if he didn't understand them. You know, there'd be times where I would just be crying and I wasn't able to articulate or I don't think I even understood where the sadness was kind of coming from. Mm. And I think it really tormented him in a way, but he always took it very seriously. It could have been a situation where, you know, when a child is unable to explain why they're sad, you kind of brush it away, you know, and say, okay, it must not be that serious. But yeah, to have an adult and a a guardian who can really pay attention, I think Mm. is is a gift. A huge gift. I love the the story of um, you getting stuck halfway up a, a rock, like a climbing wall. Yes. Um, and <laughs> please, like you tell the story rather than me. <laughs> okay. Yes. I mean, this is Arthur family lore. Like this is, you know, what <laughs> everyone's every Christmas. Go- yes, exactly. When everyone's going around the table and everyone has a story, this is mine. So <laughs> my father and my stepmom, they used to work at this, well, they volunteered at this annual rib cook-off that would last about a week. And um, my siblings and I thought they were very, very important because, you know, everyone knew who they were and they were kind of in charge of running the whole thing. And which in in hindsight, it's a very big responsibility and says something about their hearts and their intuition. But so there are all kinds of activities at this thing. And there's this giant 
rock wall. To me, it felt giant at least. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, when I tell you I was a scared child, I mean, I'm just a scared person and I don't say that in a, it's a self-deprecating way. I think fear can be really beautiful and sacred and I'm not ashamed of that, but I am a very scared person and my sister is quite brave. (laughs) So she, you know, drags me on this rock wall. I get halfway up it and I'm just sobbing. I, I'm, I feel like I cannot move. I cannot take, (laughs) my legs are shaking. You would like, in my mind, this was the end. This was death. (laughs) And, you know, I, I, I just stuck there forever. Uh, That was the end of it. (laughs) And my little arms were shaking and my sister, you know, she goes up and down easy. And she eventually has the worker call my parents on the the walkie talkies. So my dad, you know, races over in the golf cart or whatever. And, you know, instead of coaching me from the ground, which would have been maybe the reasonable thing to do, he just straps, he harnesses in and, you know, gets on belay and he's, he's up there. Next thing you know, he's next to me and he's like, you know, coaching me to the top, going reach and step and use your legs and not your arms and till we hit the buzzer. And in my memory, at least, whenever I hit that buzzer, just the crowd um was just frenzied you know <laughs> like joy and I, I I mean such a such a strong core memory of joy I think and of belonging and oh, real pride yeah. pride in my body you know I I was very detached I mean we, we've talked about this a bit I was re- really mm-hmm. detached from my body as a child I didn't know my body could do you know such a thing and so I felt pride in my body as well as this connection yeah, it's oh. amazing. I have a very similar memory, which I think is why I relate to that story so much of going up a mountain with the girl guides and getting stuck at the top, like just having that feeling of my legs falling away underneath me and, and lying on the ground, like clinging to a rock wow. <laughs> and saying, I, that's it. I can't, I can't come down again. Like I, I literally felt like the mountain could crumble underneath me and everything was going to fall down and I couldn't move. Mm. And I I was walked down by an entire girl guide troop, like literally taking me one step at a time. <laughs> and I know exactly how you felt in that moment. And I, yes. there's, you know, there's sometimes being the fearful one, which I definitely always was, is a real privilege because you learn what it is for people to take care of you. And I I don't think everyone learns that lesson until it's forced on them when they're older and they resent it. And I like there's something yes. about being taken care of that's a real it's it's an aspect of our humanity that we don't like to think about, but that it's an important one. It comes to all of us eventually. Yes. Oh, I I mean, I think that's beautifully said. So much humility, I think, comes mm. uh, is born out of fear. And I also think, you know, for people like us, the scared ones, um, yeah. you know, there's, yeah. I think there's a kind of intuition that is grown in mm. us because maybe we're more attuned to those inner stirrings, more attuned and than the person who maybe is very quick to want to triumph and, you know, conquer the fear, you know, yeah. to the, the, yeah. very different than the sensation of wanting to win. I think the sensation of fear is is more of a listening, you know, which I think mm. lends itself really mm. well to to intuition as we age. Yeah, definitely. And I, like in some ways, I I feel a little sorry for people who who are so afraid of those moments. You know, like I'm, I get fearful of heights and spiders and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But what I don't get 
afraid of is being afraid. Like I, that's, that's okay for me. I don't mind being vulnerable. And I, I'm really glad to have trust in being vulnerable because to me, that is a a life skill actually. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And and a vital one. Yes. Mm. I I absolutely agree. I mean, I talk about this in, in this year flesh a bit, but I think fear can be such a protective force you know, and Mm. it gets such a bad rap, really. But if you think about it, you know, fear is the thing that keeps us from, from, you know, jumping from building to building, from, you know, putting our hand over the flame. There's this really protective force that I think that can be at the heart of it. You know, when you talk about that being cared for, there's also a sense of being protected and kind of habitual realization that you are worthy of protection, you know, and Mm. worthy of that care and that, that nurturing that I think comes out of those fear experiences. Yeah. Like it's interesting to tell your dad's story in that context because he had his own huge vulnerabilities as well as being this like exceptionally mindful parent. He also had his, his kind of Achilles heel, didn't he? Which was addiction. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there comes a, point in the book when you have to take care of him as well yes oh that's um it's true there's there's a shift that happens you know my father he he lived with his addiction for a number of years in secret he's very very shrewd you know um very smart and aware of his own presence and so he was able to to kind of operate in a kind of hiding for quite some time and so and you know there's so much to say about illusions and Mm. kind of how enchanting they are uh, especially as a child you know and there's something beautiful in in that enchantment but also something really devastating when like a veil is lifted and you realize I'm not the only one afraid um, Mm. and I'm not the only one who who needs protected and care and kind of nurturing and so it's really complicated to encounter that I think in our heroes and those who we want to believe to be superhuman but I Mm. think I started to love my father so much deeper when I recognized him as human you know as human and there was something really painful but also healing about that shift and how I how I viewed him Mm. and I I loved how compassionately you wrote about that you know like in other writers' hands, that would have been a da 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 moment. Like, but actually, yes. as it turns out, my father was not who I thought he was. You know, all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And actually, the way you describe it, it was just another aspect of of this man that you found incredible and a and a vulnerability that he needed help with. And that doesn't diminish him in your eyes or our eyes as we read. Yes, and I'm I'm just so relieved any time someone says that that's how they've read it because that oh, yeah. was yeah. just something that really haunted me as I was writing. How do I really complicate someone's humanity and not have them be diminished to any one kind of story mm. or diminished to kind of a plot, you know, a narrative yeah. arc? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, yeah. complicate it so that there's many kind of tensions and releases, and you know, this is significant, and I don't want to, you know, diminish that, but I also don't want my father's story to just be eclipsed, and so I took extra care, I think, in those early chapters, the first half of the book, to really 
help people fall in love with my father Mm. and my grandmother, how I fell in love with them and am in love with them. And so that by the time they come to the basement, by, by the time they arrive to the realization, it's not this unmasking, you know, it's kind yeah. of like more so like turning a leaf over in your hand and you're you're seeing a different part, mm. you know, you're privileged to, to more. Yeah, it's a deepening of a very human story about a family who didn't always know how to love themselves, you know, <laughs> and who have existed in a world that's been incredibly hostile to them. And how we cope actually how we get through Mm -hmm. yeah and I've I've noticed I mean as I wrote I noticed so much overlap in my father's story my grandma's story and my story in terms of you know hiding as a coping um, as a a form of coping and and dislocation you know this kind of solitariness Mm. as a coping and yeah, it was really eye-opening to encounter myself in my father, you know, in my father's yeah. story. And I'd always thought of us as so different, you know, because he's so charming. And like we talked about, he's this kind of character, um, this lovely character. And when I wrote, I realized the the distance between us is really not that great. Mm. Mm. And I feel like that informs the way you talk about God as you conceive of them as this charismatic figure who is with you in your weakest degraded difficult moments rather than is judging you like who's walking alongside you yes yeah you know I try to I I'm just trying to become more honest about what I really think about the divine and Mm. like the truth is I really do think about God as this familial this kind of uh tender familial existence um maybe and kind of embodying these different aspects of uh, a family certainly not a nuclear family necessarily but you know I think about Mm. God as a mother I think about God as a as a child and and so I wanted to express that and I've never really resonated with a very formal and demanding God yeah yeah well, and, I, it just seems to me that lots of people use that that God to tell people off for stuff that they themselves don't approve of. You know, that, that God yes. is like a toolkit, you know, that you, you throw at people you don't like. I mean, exactly, yeah. exactly. As a way, as opposed to a way of making sense of of who you are and 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 how you move in the world and what your relationship to other people. Mm. There, there is a way I think to experience God as kind of a lens the divine is a lens to help you see the world and see yourself clearly you know see the see mm. the barn swallows you know in the backyard yeah. clearly there, I think there's a way to experience the divine that's like that as opposed to this you know instruction manual and yeah 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 a, a right and wrong like a really fixed sense of right and wrong that isn't in any way contingent on what's coming up for you at the moment and what you're having to deal with exactly exactly mm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm just interrupting you for a moment to ask if you'd consider subscribing to my Patreon. Friends of the Wintering Sessions get an extended edition of the podcast a day early, the chance to put questions to my guests, a monthly bonus episode and exclusive discounts on my courses and events. Most of all, you help to keep the podcast running. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May. Do take a look. Now back to the show. So I want to hear about your grandma too. Um, I'm yes. always telling stories about my grandma. <laughs> um, they are irresistible people, grandmas. They are. She sounds remarkable. I mean, what she endured and what she was able to become is a story in itself, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I. It, it's really hard to 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 think about, you know, to to really think about the things that she's lived through. You know, I was just mm. talking to my sister about this the other day, the the just trajectory of her life and then marking the trajectory of American history alongside alongside that life. And oh, she's been through a lot in many ways. Um she went to live with people who weren't her parents at a very young age because her mom was having struggles with her mental health and was in a hospital for a long time and ultimately the family decided she you know her mother couldn't raise her so she she went to live on this you know this very she went from Manhattan Harlem you know the city to this very rural farm area with people who were quite cruel and Mm -hmm. you know cruel in the name of God actually if we want to talk about using God as like this manual yeah um, yeah and really verbally abusive in every way you can imagine and had to make sense of herself and make sense of who she wanted God to be in that climate um Mm -hmm. and eventually you know she leaves and is kind of freed from that but it it took a toll and it I mean, mm-hmm. as her granddaughter, you you want to believe that you completely kind of transcend these difficult things. And, you know, by the time you're 70, you, um, I don't know, the, the language, you've you've conquered them maybe. or, or And yeah, to yeah. see them so clearly in her, you know, mm-hmm. as her granddaughter, to see these things that have, this abuse that had left its mark on her, you know, sleeping with the the door open, you know, sleeping in a chair and never a bed. There's so 
much tragedy that I thought was just who she is, you know, as a person. Mm -hmm. And as I got older and learned more of her story, I realized we're born out of a lot of trauma. And but in ways she she did, she she did experience a kind of liberation. She created this family. We 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 called her the the queen matriarch <laughs> and we would always we'd we'd say this thing like protect the matriarch at all costs <laughs> and she created this this family of mm. of real love and you know not perfection but of of love and our own kind of spirituality it wasn't necessarily overtly christian or you know we didn't grow up going to church or anything like that or reading the yeah. bible but there was a sense in the family that she created that you know our humanity matters and how mm. we relate to you know ourselves and our interior worlds that that matters um and so out of you know her own formation the fact that she was able to then form you know this sacred community of yeah. of love and tenderness is so so special and and she she shared i mean you 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 came to share her history yourself like it, there's a again it's the same as your dad in a way like she had this ability to be vulnerable with you and to be human with you and to allow allow that exchange almost which i don't think everybody has with their grandparents to put it lightly yes I mean, I'm not sure. So I, I started, you know, interviewing people in my family a handful of years ago, elders, and trying to preserve their stories and their memories. I was kind of plagued by this thought of, you know, this lack of artifacts and in my mm. family history. And so anyways, I started out on this personal project just to collect stories. And I would say it wasn't truly until then that I think she really let me in, you know, it, it was almost like she needed a reason and she needed an invitation so that it didn't feel like a burden, which is quite sad. But um, as it happened, you know, as I began interviewing her and when I decided that her stories would be in the book and she agreed to that, I would inter I would talk to her on, on Saturdays and just ask her question after question. And this intimacy was born and... Mm. I really don't think I would have ever told her about my own abuse as a child. And I, I don't think I ever would have had that with her had it not been for, you know, that ritual of storytelling and that mm. kind of weekly near nearness. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really grateful for how that shows up in the book. It was yeah. a, a very last minute edition. I'm talking last minute edit and I did it really? because... Yeah, it's one of those bravery moments in writing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that can be an editor's nightmare. But I just knew, you know, in order mm. for... There was so much unsaid, and there there still is, that I think there's kind of a beautiful withholding that I was trying to practice. But at the same time, I knew that there were just a few things I needed to say so that people would truly understand why it's our stories, you know, being yeah. told and this, this true, I mean, this connection that wouldn't make sense. Why, why it's so shared and the power of that, that sharing and, and that shared burden and how you can integrate all of those shameful things that you, you know, you feel so terrible about, which you shouldn't feel shameful, but you do by having a shared story and and it seems to me in your book that what you're saying is that those stories flow in both directions it's not just about you inheriting 
your family's stories, but you're sharing them back to them. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of melding that happens there. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's this moment that I share in the book. So my, my grandmother, she actually passed away during the editing mm. phase of the book, during the final edits, in fact. And so there's this story I tell where I, I visit her in, in the hospital she had fibrosis of the lung and was having trouble mm. breathing and she had just come out of medically induced coma, which if anyone knows anything of that, it it takes a lot of your, um, yeah, it takes a lot of your capacities away. It takes time mm. to recover your speech and all and your fine motor movements and all kinds of things. So anyways, I'm sitting on her bed and she's just talking and telling stories, but she's still just a bit out of it. And so she's using we and I and you and they and like her, it's all kind of jumbled. And I truly, because of so much overlap in our stories, I wouldn't know. I, there were times I didn't know if she was talking about my story or hers. Right. And I just rested in that. I, I you know, I, 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 there was something about the moment that I thought this doesn't need clarification. Like I'm just going to mm. let her, her tell it, you know? And it, I mean. And she says, we did good, doesn't she? We did yes. good. Yes. She was such a poet. She said, we did good. Mm. We took the sweetest part of the fruit and we cut it off. Yeah. That's what she said. It's incredible. We took the sweetest part of the fruit and we cut it off. And I'd love, I'd love you to make the link for us towards your, like your work is about the sort of the huge burden of black history that rests or black American history in particular that rests on you as this latest generation and how how you come to carry that as the heir to this this huge kind of terrible story that that hangs over you as a, a member of a, a wider community yes I mean it's it's it would be so hard to tell our family's story without telling the story of blackness mm. you know not that our our generational story can encapsulate it but you know I just wouldn't be telling a true story and yeah yeah um so I do go there in my work with Black liturgies and in this here flesh. Mm. I wanted to get out a kind of spirituality that didn't come at the expense of my blackness. You know, I have belonged to spiritual spaces that kind of demanded that I leave my my blackness at the door, so to speak, in order to enter this larger yeah. community. And it was really painful and damaging. So in this year, Flesh, I'm really protective of that. I'm really protective <laughs> of maybe the the unique ways, the particular ways that my family has come to understand the spiritual, mm. not in spite of Blackness, but because of it. You know, what are our rituals? What are our, also, what are our coping, you know, what are our coping yeah. habits? But yeah, what are our rituals? What are our loves? What are our desires? You know, all of those things that are, so formed, um, so informed by our blackness, they have room, you know, they have room in the conversation as opposed to being kind of um, pushed down. Um, I try to mm. let it, let it breathe. Yeah. And you, you say a lot there about, you, there's, there's a moment when your, your Bible teacher says to you, you know, God's in your heart and you, you rebel against that. You're like, no, I don't want God there. I want God like at the corner of the street kind of, you know. Yeah. I want that presence in my everyday life as I live it rather than in some kind of idealized future space that in which I am perfect. Yes, this kind of immaterial, vague, you know, 
language of the heart. It's it's very um, it's very white evangelical that language, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think that people who use it always understand you know what they sound like to other people. I think there's nothing wrong with having your particular eyes you know, language, but when you're completely unaware, uh, your language doesn't translate to, to an outsider. I think it says a lot about your spiritual practice, but yeah, I I was in college when I first started hearing, you know, again and again, all this language about inviting Jesus into your heart. And it all felt very um, imprecise and very immaterial Mm -hmm. to me in a way that I felt like I had to leave my body behind, you know, yeah. it felt like there was a complete disregard for, for the flesh, for the my embodied existence. You know, she wasn't talking about my physical heart, you know, certainly not. She was talking <laughs> yeah, about not, this not idea. Not even your actual beating raw heart is allowed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. She, she was, she, and I, I don't blame her, you know, she was a maybe 21 herself and you know ascribing to these things that we say and these 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 beliefs that we say that we believe but we're not actually sure we're not actually convinced we believe them you know I think she just like I and I I certainly didn't have the confidence to say it out loud you know all those doubts and all that resistance in me it was an inner resistance Mm. but the temptation of belonging is so large you know it looms so large that you'll say you believe anything you know um to, <laughs> yeah. to belong I mean I truly believe that that is such a huge factor and and what we say we believe or don't believe it comes down mm. so often to belonging and so what does it mean to create spaces spiritual spaces where your belonging is not predicated on what you believe, you know, about on what you think about any given thing, you know, what does it look like to create spiritual spaces that you, you can wake up one day and think an entirely different thing about God and and you're no less, you know? Mm. And there's something that you say right at the beginning of the book that struck me so hard, which I'd I'd been thinking about a lot because, like, as you might know, um, I've written about my autism diagnosis, which was like five Mm -hmm. years ago now. And that, you know, that for me was a moment when I thought a bit like you about having been a quiet person all my life who hasn't been allowed to be quiet and how... I needed to retreat from the world. But during the pandemic, I kind of came to the end of a cycle of that and realised that even I could get lonely and that actually my creative life doesn't exist in a vacuum. And you write so beautifully at the beginning about how like white religious thinking has often told you that silence and retreat and isolation are where you enter into spiritual communion. But that actually you you say, to quote you, um, I cannot sustain belief on my own. And I'm learning that sometimes the most sacred thing to do is to shout that, that spirituality exists within community. I, you know, and I, I think we can use that interchangeably with creativity there maybe. Yes. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And to mm. to allow that for yourself to, I mean, there I, I used to think that solitude and silence were you know just the pinnacle the complete pinnacle of 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 spiritual um wisdom and I mean I do still find spiritual wisdom in them but I'd completely kind of constricted my spiritual experience to those things and 
I think if it's only silence, you know, I have a very complicated, mm-hmm. we've talked about my my childhood, I have a very complicated relationship with silence from my childhood. I have a very complicated relationship with silence as a black woman in America and, mm. you know, and being silence, silence. Being, yeah, being it, silenced, it, yeah. Exactly. And so there's a real complicated relationship that I, I feel I must acknowledge and I, I have to allow for a diversity of things. I need to I need a kind of silence that isn't done to me, you know, or that isn't impressed upon me, but that's chosen. And I need a kind of solitude that is only coming because I feel deeply grounded in in a community and people who love me and understand me and can pull me back in and mm-hmm. or else my solitude becomes just a practice in dislocation, you know? And so I, 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 I'm starting to realize all of these things about my contemplative practice and trying to expand how I think about them. Mm. Uh, funnily enough, I've got like a, a quite an angry passage in my new book about the way that silence and the kind of the tradition of, of men going off in a kind of monastic way to contemplate and and therefore claiming the spiritual high ground because they've thought about this stuff harder you know, yes. mm-hmm. is yes. is like a way of systematically excluding most women who are busy with these mundane duties of caring, like whatever generation you're caring for, we're, we're always looking after somebody um, yes. and how that's been weaponized against us and and how I weaponized it against myself after I had my son and I couldn't keep up with my like very rigid meditation practice that I'd made for myself that only, you know, allowed, you know, twice, had to be twice a day. It had to be after breakfast, but before I started, oh, sorry, before breakfast, but you know, like blah, 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 blah. It went on and on. Like it was really rigid. Um, and for ages I felt like I couldn't therefore access this and, and actually, it's only really recently that I've come to realise that I have to remake it for myself and that those people could learn a lot from me, actually. Yes. The, the, you know, there are depths of experience that they haven't reached if they've never looked after anyone and have only been looked after. Yes, yes. <laughs> I can. I mean, I we could talk about this for, for hours because I completely <laughs> agree, just the, the level of uh, the... Um, the sheer privilege and just being able to like extract oneself and, you know, go off. It's, it's so, you know, maybe they've thought about a thing more, but you've lived it, you know, you're, 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 you're living it. You're, you're feeling it hopefully. Mm. And I think the way that I'll say, white intellectualism has um, situated itself in the world and white male intellectualism has situated Mm. itself in the world is that, you know, the, the thinking is, <laughs> yes. is that's where the, that's the top of the hierarchy. That's the most important thing, you know. Mm. And everyone else must rally to facilitate that thinking for them. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and you have to prove yourself, you know, you have to prove yourself as thoughtful as a pro, as a, you know, you have to prove that you can think well about being kind before yeah. you you know, Go out show that. that you're being kind, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that that you are kind, you're expected to articulate something meaningful about kindness more than you're expected to, you know, operate in the world in a kind way. I think it's really mm. tricky. And there's an Audre Lorde quote that I'll probably butcher a bit, but she said- <laughs> That's okay. Know, I do that all the time on here. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase, she said something like, the white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. And the black- mother tells us I feel therefore I can be free 
And I think, um, I, I mean, I, I think it, it really is. Um, I think you can adapt that in so many, in so many ways, you know, apart mm. from just feeling, but there's something, you know, about the life of a woman that is that, you know, about the life of most women and, and most, um, socioeconomically neglected and oppressed people that yeah. has demand demanded a being you know it has mm. demanded a doing that is really valid in terms of how you are spiritually formed and encounter the spiritual so much to learn I think about this as well with children you know mm. the wisdom of children and before they're able to even articulate you know what they know the things that they know and that they're paying attention to you know yes. And they and the questions they ask as well, the things they know how to seek that we so often tell them like, or we, we kind of squash that down a bit and diminish it and say, oh, no, 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 like, don't think about that. When actually like giving them the space to think about those things is what we should completely be doing. Yes, yes. I mean, children, like you said, the questions and there's this... Um, there's this confidence that you have to have to ask a question, this kind of sacred confidence that you've been able to, to find something. You've been able to find the unknowing in you mm. and then say you desire something or you, you're curious. I think there's so much courage in the curiosity of children and oh, so much amazing. brilliance and mm. how they operate in the world and with nature and how they play that we have so much to learn from. But when we're trapped in these concepts of thought and you know the, the the cognitive project being the most important one when we're trapped yeah. in that I think we lose sight of all of you know the, these other forms of wisdom that are in our presence mm. well I, I feel like I'm very much a learner on that scale like I, I feel like I've been very devoted to my my kind of cognitive development all my life and I'm I'm gradually learning to be more embodied and to to seek different ways of knowing and it doesn't come easy to me I, I won't lie but I totally see the value in it and I'm just full of admiration for people who do move through the world as a body you know <laughs> rather than a little yes. kind of mind cloud floating above this this useless kind of flesh encasement <laughs> Yes. That's how I've often thought about my flesh encasement anyway. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I could talk to you forever and I wish we could, but I'd like to just ask you about one final thing so that I don't take over your entire life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's tempting though. But recently you've written uh, in The Atlantic, I think, about a different relationship with silence and, and about staying quiet sometimes and sometimes not feeling obliged to speak up about everything. Could you talk a bit about that? Because I, again, kind of strongly related to what you were saying there. Mm-hmm. Yes. So before I began Black Liturgies, I didn't have too much of a social media presence. I mean, I didn't have Twitter. I didn't understand kind of the culture and all mm. the ways it kind of um, all the pressures of it. I was very, I was extremely naive about it. I only followed like friends and family and not these like brilliant thinkers or news Mm. anchors or people like that. So it all felt very new to me. And I'll have people, you know, when something tragic happens or something tragic is trending, well-meaning people message me and, you know, ask me, are you going to write about this? Mm. Why haven't you said anything about this? I mean, I think because I was so new to the experience, I was maybe able to become more critical of what was happening to me. So I was thinking, how strange, like this wouldn't be asked of me 
in person, you know, over if I was having coffee with someone, they wouldn't. Mm. And at the what end, do you think I didn't. About this, can you prepare yes, to me on this? Yeah, surely no one would, you know, criticize me. But there is this real, I think, current, this cultural current, and this formation really that is telling us that when something bad happens, that we must mm. comment on it. Yeah, I personally think the summer of 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Mm. that and Ahmaud Arbery and, and Elijah McClain and I could go on something about that moment I think maybe tipped the scales or did something yeah. to um where if you didn't comment on a thing it meant that you you did that thing you know you're just as guilty as the hand that pulled the trigger yeah that you're somehow culpable of yeah yeah and yeah. I think that re- really did some damage to everyone's psyche and to everyone's, you know, the demand that requires the demand we place on ourselves to have something articulate or meaningful to say in response to the the war and the invasion of Ukraine, you know, yeah. and I, in that Atlantic article, I say, you know, on February 23rd, like I couldn't have pointed out Ukraine on the ma- on a map. <laughs> And I'm I'm expected to, you know, craft some meaningful statement, which really would be, if I'm honest, it would have been a work of theater. It would have been theatrical mm. because I knew so little and I knew I needed to read. And I knew that there were other voices, in fact, that would it be much more appropriate, you know, voices who know more, yeah. you know, it'd be much more appropriate to allow them to kind of have the air, you know, at least for a little while, you know, mm. but it was the next day and people were asking me to to comment and so I, I'm very suspicious of this. I don't think that there's, a, you know, I'm not so suspicious that I think there's something wrong in commenting. You know, certainly if you feel drawn to or you feel like you have something that you need to process or uh, mm. I, I think that's beautiful and good. But what if you don't? And is that okay? And I think yeah, silence, <laughs> I, I, th- I, I think silence does something. It allows you to really become honest. You know, I, I say to halt the theater and to ask yourself or hear rather to listen to, are you angry? Are you sad? Do you feel mm. nothing? You know, silence. That's where I can be honest and say, I, I feel nothing. And I want to feel something, you know, I, I think silence can do so, so many things. And we've taken, I mean, I've done this, I'm guilty of this the words of very brilliant, you know, Black ancestors, we've taken them so far to heart about silence. And, mm-hmm. um, and we really oppressed people throughout history have made really beautiful remarks on the, the the violence of silence. I mean, we've talked about this some here, but yeah. I think, what does it mean to nuance that, you know? And I, I think that that's been my journey a little bit, this silent, you know, this silent little girl, this restricted girl, this then becoming this... Um, kind of in resistance to the violence and the oppressive form of silence and wanting to really live in my own voice. And then also coming to reacquaint myself and is there something beautiful in it? Is there mm. something that I'm able to to hear in silence that I would otherwise, you know, be completely unaware of? And I think the answer is yes. Well, I mean, it, it seems to me that what's so obvious is that that little girl who was choosing not to talk was listening and watching and understanding in a way that other people were not that there there it is right now like you are the embodiment of the value of sometimes just you know choosing silence in a in a mm-hmm. positive way yes i i do mm. think it's possible and i think we have a lot to learn from people who are able to practice it you know when they're under great pressure you know, <laughs> um, yeah. i think we have a lot to learn from from 
from that kind of silence and you know the rest of just pacing around the perimeter of my house and in silence like what kind of um yeah what kind of formation that that offers me that allows me to then meet the tragedies of the world mm. not from a state of you know an impoverished spirit but one that's kind of awake and alive and you know not just concerned with the sound of my own voice you know yeah. i just think that's such wisdom for our age and i like I, I've been gradually reversing out of Twitter, <laughs> having mm. having been there right from the start, actually, and and loved, you know, as somebody who felt very isolated in the world and very different to everyone else without understanding why, there was a time when I was so grateful to flow into that space and find other voices like mine. And like the, re- I can't even explain to you the release of that, actually, to be understood truly understood you like for what I was and then there came a phase when I felt overwhelmed by it but also that I was taking part in an important act of witnessing you know that it had put me in contact with the many many scratchy truths of the world that, that were uncomfortable to see but that I understood life on a more micro level and and you know Twitter is just full of voices calling out to be heard and I I think it's a really mixed blessing to be able to hear them. And it's the first time in history we've been able to do it. And it's mm-hmm. changed us. It's changed us for the better. Yes. But <laughs> <laughs> there's also this pressure to go in and perform anger every day. Yes. Like at completely outrageous things, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't think those things are worthy of anger because they're awful and infuriating, but I am not, living a good life if I'm just going out and spouting rage in every direction every single day and being taken up by that like it's useless to me and I'm useless to the world through that fury that is that just generates itself you know it's like this big inferno that and as soon as you're not angry everybody's angry with you which I think is what you were you were saying yes and so I'm I'm stepping away and I Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about that because I do think that some of the things it's thrown in my path have been good for me to be rattled by. You know, that Mm -hmm. unsettled feeling that it often gives me is right. I should feel unsettled by those things going on. Yes. I feel we have similar feelings about Twitter. You know, everyone (laughs) criticizes Instagram and, you know, I find Twitter just so painful. You know, Mm. I made the mistake of scrolling through Twitter just before we had our conversation. Oh dear, sorry. <laughs> um, and I was on my laptop. I thought, why am I doing this? I came across this horrible, very mm. sad video. And, you know, the kind of ripping in and out of these kind of tragic moments you're scrolling, the kind of, it's, it's a real emotional labor to kind of pull yourself into the, the tragedy of, you know, Af- yeah. Afghanistan and, you know, the little girls not being able to return to school. And then I scroll and I see, you know, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. And the next post is, you know, about face cream. And it's, it's, then the next post is about <laughs> yeah. a, another, losing another black person, you know, yeah. it's, it's a real emotional tug that I think we haven't been able to adapt to yet. I don't think we, I don't know if we ever will. I don't know if we have the equipment, you know, I I don't know if we've got the brain structure to deal with, as you say, like desiring face cream and believing that it will solve all your problems next to the death of a child. 
and yes. a political injustice and then a hilarious bit of gossip. Like I, I don't know if I've got the capacity for that, honestly. Yeah. What is, I, I don't know if I want to, you're right. Like, do I want to have the capacity for that mm. kind of transition and that, that, what is that doing to me, you know? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I've had to find ways and it sounds like you're, you're figuring this out as well. Or Very much in the process like of, I've, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find ways to kind of set up these, you know, these boundaries in my life because I'm really, I'm, I'm really concerned about how I'm being formed as a public presence on these apps, as a human on these apps. I went and got a a dumb phone shortly after starting Black Liturgies. I got rid of my smartphone because I, I just felt like so much was changing about me so quickly that I thought I would be immune to, you know, you think, you know, once you know the threat, you, you'll, you're immune to it, but you know, these structures, these systems are very smart. So anyways, mm. I, I now, you know, I go on Twitter on my laptop, which creates a bit of distance as opposed to carrying it with me. There's oh kind goodness. of a, yeah. a silence throughout my day. I know that's, it's a very privileged thing to be able to have a dumb phone. You know, I, I don't think that's really <laughs> practical for most people. Um, I live in a very small town. I, I don't need directions often. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, it's been so wonderful and so, um, um, healing for me to not ca- be carrying around the noise of the world with me, mm. you know, all day long to carry that it's heavy. All the world's pain in your pocket. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's heavy. Oh, Cole, thank you so much. It was just the most wonderful conversation. And thank I, you. I mean, I love where we've got to because I'm now about to say to everyone that they should find you online. <laughs> <laughs> And here we are. Yeah. And that that just neatly encapsulates where we are because we're going out and we're looking for wise minds like yours and we're trawling through a whole lot of other stuff in between. But um, I just, you know, thank you so much for your wonderful book, uh, which I'd recommend to anyone, This Here Flesh, and for this brilliant conversation today. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me into your space and trusting me with your listeners. So, Oh my goodness, always. I am standing next to the most magnificent herring gull. I know you're technically supposed to hate herring gulls if you live by the sea. They are the seagulls that come and aggressively steal your chips. But I think they're magnificent birds. They take three years to mature. And so you can tell roughly how old a herring gull is when it's under three. This one is a year two juvenile. The first year are kind of big and puffy and speckled. And then the second year, they're still speckled, but their wings are blacker and they just look a bit skinnier and leaner. By the third year, they'll have their incredible pristine white feathers that always look so neat and tidy. Bert always calls them nosebleed goals because they have a little red spot on their beak that looks like their nose is bleeding. It's quite a good way to identify them, actually. Anyway, this gull, who is a couple of metres away from me and looking me dead in the eye in a challenging way, has only got one leg. 
but he's styling it out. He's landed on one of the groin posts. He's standing there looking for all the world like he could come and take my chips if I had any. I wouldn't fancy my chances against him. It's part of the amazing stuff that you could notice in this world. It's always there waiting for you. I just love the way Cole Arthur Riley talks about that big heady mix of suffering and life's challenges and the weight of history and political anger mixed with wonder and awe and all those simple emotions that we're longing to feel and how we contain it rather than anything external to us. If you haven't read This Here Flesh, don't be put off if you're not a reader of spiritual books. Seriously, challenge yourself, give it a go. Park your cynicism, park your scepticism and just immerse yourself in her beautiful writing. I just love her prose and I love the way she made me see the world we live in for a little while. I can't give you any stronger recommendation than that. Read it, read it, read it, read it. (laughs) It's a beautiful cover too, if that helps. I like a good cover. (sighs) I'm going to head home and cook everyone dinner in a minute. But I just wanted to thank you for being here. I feel kind of good about the world at the moment. Well, I feel bad about the actual world. The world is full of dreadful, dreadful stuff. But I kind of always notice in these moments when we're all despairing that amazing compassionate quality of our despair it gives me hope every time I can't help it I'm an optimist I always admire the way we survive and take care of each other even when we're urged not to and even when we're told it's silly and that we should look away and that it's not our responsibility we reach out I just love that about us we can't stop and we shouldn't, ever so I need to say thank you to everyone who helps making this podcast to the producer Buddy Peace who composes the music and to Megan Hutchins who we've been trying to find a title for because Megan is my virtual assistant she puts so much in place in my world and just like helps me endlessly to cope But she has such a pivotal role in this podcast. She looks after all the guests. She makes sure they're really well informed, that they're looked after, that they know where they should be. Fills in big gaps that I leave there. And she makes sure that me and Buddy are all well coordinated and motivated and that we know what we're doing. And so we have recently entered into the British Podcast Awards I'm telling you that as an act of vulnerability because I don't suppose we'll even get listed. We're, we're competing against much bigger podcasts. But I wanted to put us in there because I'm really proud of what we do. And I know there's loads of you who love this podcast and I love that you love it. <laughs> and I love making it. Anyway, I had to put a title for Megan and we've decided that she is the podcast's convener, which maybe isn't perfect. But I love that there's a role there for someone who is helping everyone to gather, helping everyone to get together. It's kind of a soft, gentle thing that she does, but she does it so well. Anyway, that's my tribute to Megan today. 
I'm very lucky to have the team behind me that I have. And she helps me to manage my brilliant Patreon community, who this month, as a special, are getting a reading clinic. I'm going to do my best to help everyone to understand how to get their reading mojo back or where to find that next, that elusive next book when you're a bit stuck. I've been really stuck with my reading for a long time and I'm just coming out of it again. I'm feeling that urge to rush through loads of books now to kind of eat them whole and I want to help other people back. So if you're not a member of the Patreon community, consider joining. Come and talk to us. We're really friendly. It's really lovely. I've got some interesting plans for the future there too. Watch this space. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Cole, for a brilliant conversation. And I'll see you all next time. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.